everybody. This is Chris. And Kathy. We wanted to take a minute to thank you all for tuning in. We appreciate every listener and are grateful for this platform. Please help us share our vision by subscribing to our show through your favorite streaming app. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at Petability Podcast. Check out our ever-growing list of affiliates and sponsors. Simply go to the show notes for information and links. And be sure to use our promo code PETPOD22, that's P-E-T-P-O-D-2-2, on checkout to receive your discount from our affiliates. And now, here's a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Alon Landa, CEO of MedcoVet, and I'm a proud sponsor of Petability. We decided to partner with Chris and Kathy because, like them, we want to empower all pet owners who are trying to do the most for their pets. At MedcoVet, we specialize in advanced home laser therapy for pets. Laser therapy is a safe and effective treatment for common conditions like arthritis and wounds, and it relieves pain for most conditions caused by inflammation. With MedcoVet, pet owners can perform this treatment at home while receiving support from experienced clinicians. If you think your pet would benefit from healing at home, visit MedcoVet.com, and one of our clinical experts will work with you to determine if home laser therapy is the right fit for you and your pet. Tell them Petability sent you. Welcome to Petability. I'm your host, Kathy Simons. And I'm your host, Chris Cranston. Our podcast provides interviews and information to help your pets live their best lives. Good morning, Chris. How are you on this crisp wintry day? Hello, hello, hello. Uh, this interview is earlier than I'm used to, so I had to set my alarm and do some wake-up exercises. Yeah, yeah, me too, me too. I had to wake, do you know what I had to do? I had to wake my dog up early. Do you know what it's like to try to wake a pug up early? It's, so It's like, it's like a noodle. It is. And we may hear him snoring more than usual. You may, you may hear him snoring more than usual, yes. Chris, we, uh, we've uh, spoken in the past about... Uh, you know, how fortunate we are to have not only very talented and very dedicated doctors in, in this area, but the the ability to have access to specialty services in this area, too, is such a such a blessing. You know, not only board certified surgeons and rehabilitationists and ophthalmologists, but neurologists as well. Um, and I feel particularly blessed, you know, since my first dog needed the services, the services of a neurologist and uh, Dr. Silver, who was our guest speaker today. She was there for us. You know, and, and from the perspective of an owner, not necessarily a technician, um, when your dog starts exhibiting or having neurologic symptoms or, or has been diagnosed with a neurologic disease, that's very frightening, right? And, yeah. and it's very, and, and it's so complex in nature, you know, involving the brain and the spinal cord. Um, and, and this is in no way a statement to minimize the trauma of a broken bone, but, you know, there's a straight line here. There's a straight line from, you know, fracture to repair to recovery. And in eight weeks, you know, we're, we're done, you know. So given its, you know, complexity, you know, it's important to have access to these board certified neurologists. So I feel very grateful that I have access to uh, the best of the best, right? Absolutely. So I know. So without uh, without further ado, let me let me tell you a little bit about our guests today. 
We've spoken with Dr. Silver in the past. You know, we've done a previous interview with her on disc disease. So if you haven't heard that episode, you should go back and listen. It's actually one of our most popular downloaded shows. Uh, so people should go back and take a listen to that. So um, Dr. Silver has been with MassVet Referral Hospital in Woburn, Mass since 2000. So she started from the ground up. She she built that department. She She's uh, going from ground up with, with MassVet Referral. Welcome to our show, Dr. Gina Silver. Welcome, Dr. Good Silver. Good morning. Welcome back. Thank you, ladies. I'm glad you enjoyed your slumber. I was out running at 530 this morning, so I am crisp and ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy, uh, Kathy, she's one of those, again, that uh, puts, <laughs> puts us to shame. You know, we've discovered that many of our interviewees... Um, are we don't know how you get it all done within a 24-hour day truly it's amazing <laughs> well it's you have to do something to uh, wake you up to get you ready for the day so it's uh, better than a stiff cup of coffee listen i've got 24 7 just taking care of one pug i can't be running at 5 30 it takes all of my energy just to take care of this one guy <laughs> Well, I think my staff would tell you that they wouldn't want to see me if I didn't do my run. That uh, morning, so. I gotcha, I gotcha, I gotcha. We got to get some of those vices, calming right? hormones. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, I wanted well, to just ask you, um, you actually reached out to us after doing that first wonderful interview and suggested that we do an interview with you on vestibular syndrome. And you know, I guess that's my my first point of curiosity is, is why did you reach out to us? What's what's the deal there? Yeah, so I would say as a neurologist, um, you know, I'll often tell clients if I don't see one today, I'll see five tomorrow. So vestibular dysfunction is probably one of my top three uh, presenting issues in animals with neurological dysfunction. So it's super common um, and it tends to happen very abruptly. And so it, the signs can be quite severe and very uh, alarming to owners. And so it's, um, it's a very common presentation. Um, so I figured it would be a good thing to chat about. Um, you know, I was going to say probably herniated discs, seizures, and vestibular dysfunction are kind of the top three things that we see on a daily basis as uh, um, practicing what I do. Can I ask you a question? Sometimes I hear the, the term vestibular syndrome, and sometimes I hear the term vestibular dysfunction, and every once in a while, I hear the term vestibular disease. Um, can you clarify that for us? What is vestibular dysfunction and what terminology are we really using? Yeah, so I, I tend to prefer vestibular dysfunction because vestibular disease to me has connotations that there's a particular thing causing this. Um, and that's not true. So your clinical signs of vestibular dysfunction uh, can be caused by a variety of different things. And so it's really, you know, the, the differential list is very wide. And so uh, to me, vestibular disease is kind of like nails on a chalkboard because, again, it makes it sound like there's one thing causing it. And you may be at a park with 10 different, um, you know, fellow uh, animal owners, all of those people having a history of having a vestibular issue at some point with their animal and the the cause of that may have been 10 different um, reasons. So we'll kind of take a, you know, a systematic approach to um, looking at what clinical signs are um, consistent with vestibular dysfunction. And then we'll talk about where the problem may be. And based on where the problem is, there's a host of different things that can cause that. So we'll kind of start from the beginning 
um, and I can just pour right into it. Or if you want to ask a few questions and then we can get into it. Take it away. Yes, please. Okay. All right. So just to kind of uh, start from the very beginning. So with every animal that comes in, you know, for us, the first thing is, you know, are you in the right department? So is this a neurological problem? So when animals have clinical signs of vestibular dysfunction, what I'll tell owners is that we all, animals and people, have 12 cranial nerves that innervate or take care of the function of everything you do from the neck up. Cranial nerve number eight is called the vestibular cochlear nerve. And so just as those little buzz terms, um, you know, bring some uh, familiarity to people, vestibular is like vertigo, it's equilibrium, it's balance. Cochlear is like cochlear implants, it's hearing. So cranial nerve number eight, that nerve's function is balance, equilibrium, and hearing. So you have one nerve on the left side that takes care of the left side of the body. You have one nerve on the right side that takes care of the right side of the body. And so that nerve originates in the brain stem, but a branch of it leaves the brain and comes out and is located in the inner ear. And so technically a problem anywhere where that nerve originates or travels can cause dysfunction of that nerve. And so when that nerve is affected, when we talk about the vestibular component of the nerve, the clinical signs that you can see, and what I'll tell owners is that sometimes you'll just see one sign, sometimes two, it's not an all or nothing. So even if you just have one sign, that's enough to say that that nerve is effective. So the things that you can see can be a head tilt. And most of the time, but not always, there's exceptions to every rule, but most of the time the head is going to tilt towards the side of where the nerve is having a problem. You can have what we call a vestibular ataxia, which is kind of like a drunkenness. And sometimes that clinical sign can be very subtle, meaning that maybe when the animal goes to jump on something or jump off something, they underjump, they overjump, they fall when they jump. Or if they shake their head, they knock themselves over and they have to kind of catch themselves. So it can be very subtle or it can be quite obvious. And I'll often term it as one martini, two martini, three martini, Mm. four. So varying varying degrees of drunkenness. Gotcha. And then you can have it so bad where the animal cannot stand and walk and they literally are what people will describe as rolling like an alligator. So alligator rolling. And so varying degrees of drunkenness. You can also see what's called an astagmus. And an astagmus is a rapid involuntary motion of the eyes. And it can come in a variety pack. So it can be horizontal, where it's shifting back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It can be rotary, whereas if you look at where the uh, white part of the eye meets the color part of the eye, it almost looks like it's going in a, a kind of a circular type of a motion. And then sometimes it can be going in what's called vertical, where it's straight up and down. Sometimes that nystagmus is so profound, you can even see it in the eyebrow, where the eyebrow is flickering. And in some animals, you can even see it in the head where it's moving almost like a typewriter. So that's an astagmus. Um, and so the, those are the main clinical signs you'll see when the vestibular system is affected. And so I'll often say the signs can be so obvious that I can diagnose it across the parking lot, meaning I see the dog with the head tilt kind of falling and coming into the clinic. I know that that animal has vestibular dysfunction. Now, the harder part is kind of going to... Um, be trying to define where is that problem. So if the problem is in the brain stem where that nerve originates, 
we call that a central vestibular dysfunction. If the problem is in the peripheral uh, component of the nerve where it sits in the inner ear, we call that a peripheral vestibular dysfunction. Different things happen in different compartments. So some differentials for brain stem causes can be anything from a stroke to a tumor to something inflammatory, um, congenital. Uh, differentials for a problem that happens out in the peripheral can be potentially secondary from a, a middle to inner ear infection. Um, there's actually a syndrome that's called old dog or idiopathic vestibular dysfunction, which means sometimes we see this in older animals. And despite our full workup, we will not find an underlying cause. Therefore, we label it idiopathic. Um, and it tends to come on very abruptly, but it also goes away in time. Uh, once in a while, we'll see other more sinister things out in the periphery. So sometimes you can have tumors in the um, uh, middle ear area. Um, so those are kind of like, you know, just a, a quick jump into some vestibular. So maybe I'll slow down and see if you've got so some questions if, before we move on. I guess, you know, for, as an owner if, or, or if an owner calls me while I'm at the clinic and they describe these symptoms to me, in my head, I'm going, I'm going to send you to the emergency room because I don't I don't know what this is. You know, is this an emergency room situation? You know, my dog, certainly if your dog is falling over and head tilting and alligator rolling, I, I would certainly say you, you need to call your veterinarian right away. But what about some of these less, you know, the more subtle symptoms? Like, is this urgent to get to your veterinarian immediately? Um, or can I wait till Monday to call you, depending on what my dog's symptoms are? Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question um, with kind of a not so direct uh, answer. Mm -hmm. So in general, I'll often say with vestibular dysfunction, you can't always judge a book by the cover. So sometimes that dog that was perfectly normal and then boom, it comes on and they can't even stand up and they're rolling like an alligator. And you're looking at this poor animal thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, just you got to stop and put this animal out of their misery. They're suffering. Mm -hmm. If that's caused by idiopathic or old dog vestibular dysfunction, that dog may be perfectly normal in a week, two weeks, um, mm -hmm. versus sometimes you'll see a dog that comes into me with, um, yeah, it's a little head tilt, bounce a little bit off. It's been going on for a little bit of time. Their clinical signs, you know, don't look that bad, but sometimes the actual cause of that can be something more sinister. Mm -hmm. And so I think always it's, you know, you know, what I tell owners is that if it's worrying you and you're wigging out about it, it's mm. always best just to head in um, to the ER and uh, take a, you know, see what they think. Uh, and again, with this one, sometimes we can often just identify, yep, this is vestibular dysfunction. Looks like it's on the left-hand side. What I try to do for my neuro exam is I try looking to see, is there anything on this animal that's going to tell me that for sure, for sure, that this is a central problem? And so there are certain things that we look for. And sometimes I can tell you this is a primary brain problem, but sometimes it's hard to tell. And so, you know, it's a it's a challenging one, you know, for owners because the signs can be very severe. Um, and again, if it's old dog vestibular, this dog may be fine, in, you know, in a, a week or two. Mm -hmm. um, and so up front, you know, the challenge for the owners is do we kind of wait, watch and see what happens, give it a little bit of time. If signs aren't getting better or they're getting worse, um, then come back and do workup. Uh, or do we bite the bullet and do a, a big workup up front uh, for peace of mind or to get more information? 
So I'll often tell the owners that opt to proceed on with a you know full workup, which usually includes an MRI, so I can actually look at the brainstem and the inner ears. I'll always tell them that if this is old dog vestibular or the idiopathic, again, same same connotation, that the best thing we could find on imaging is nothing. Uh, and that's what will happen with these old dog vestibular cases. And so with some owners, you know, the cost of workup and peace of mind of if this is old dog vestibular, it's totally worth the, the price of admissions, totally mm-hmm. worth the, the, the cost. Um, other owners, you know, it's a, it's a lot of money. So some other owners will say, well, you know, if I can give this, uh, my, my pet some supportive care, just make sure we're eating, drinking, able to help them out with the bathroom. Let's see what happens over the next week or so. So with neuro, things will come out in the wash eventually. So if it's old dog vestibular, idiopathic vestibular, signs are going to get better. It's hard to tell you, you know, two, two days, two weeks or longer. Um, you know, I'll often say there's no race to the finish line as long as you're making your way there. Give them time. Um, so yeah, it depends on, on where they want to go. Now, sometimes I do see signs that gosh, uh, sometimes based on the age of the dog. So with the old dog vestibular, it tends to be older animals. So if I have a two-year-old dog come in, uh, no history of, uh, prior ear infections. Um, you know, there's some animals that I may nudge you to be a little more aggressive than other animals. Um, so that we do take them all as individuals. Um, so again, going back to vestibular disease, it's not always one problem. And so depending on who's in front of me, the history, my clinical exam, there's some that I'll say, you know, I you know, take one day at a time, see what happens. Uh, there's others where I'm like, hey, this may be something a little more sinister. We better get some more information. So, Dr. Silver, if it is something that's more sinister, are there treatments? I know we haven't gotten into to treatments, but, you know, I'm thinking like if there's a, a tumor or something like that in the inner ear or the brainstem, that doesn't sound to me like that would be a very good prognosis, um, you know, that, that surgery would be an option. Uh, can you speak to that? Yeah. So, um, again, um, treatment options and prognosis depend on diagnosis. So often from the outside, all we can say is, yes, you have right-sided vestibular dysfunction. Um, Your treatment options, your prognosis is going to depend on what's causing your dog's vestibular signs. And so that's where the imaging comes into play. And then, you know, just another conversation as far as CT versus MRI, um, you know, because that uh, comes up in conversation. So CT exam tends to be less expensive than an MR scan. However, uh, MR scan is going to be your better option. So MRI is going to allow you to evaluate the middle and inner ear as well as the um, brainstem area. Whereas a CT scan, uh, if you know 100% it's a, a peripheral problem, a CT would be fine to evaluate the bulla and the inner ear. It's just not a great option to evaluate the brain stem. Uh, for a few reasons. Um, animals are much smaller than people. The bone at the back part of the skull is very thick. And so it's just not as crisp of an imaging study for the brainstem area. My analogy in looking at CT versus MR scan is if any of you are, are my age and remember what it's like to pay for um, or where you, where you didn't get cable as a, a kid, but you try to mm-hmm. watch the cable channels. Um, I always say the, the characters are fairly fuzzy and uncomfortable. Uh, that's my analogy of looking at the brain on a CT scan. And if I don't see something, my first thought is, what am I missing? Whereas the MRI, 
plasma screen, high def, that's as good as it gets. Right. So if I don't see something on an MR scan, I'm not going to see it on in a live animal. And so um, we're always going to default to the MR scan to get you as much information as we can um, for those vestibular dysfunction animals. And then as far as, you know, some of the sinister things, so encephalitis is something that we can see uh, in animals. And so that sometimes uh, very frequently can be an autoimmune inflammation. And the treatment for that is pretty aggressive. And again, it's not always a happy outcome, but we do actually have, you know, uh, a lot of success cases. Um, other sinister things can be tumors, whether they're primary brain tumors uh, or whether they're um, you know, infections from the ear that's gone up the eighth cranial nerve and has gone into the cranial vault. And so, again, the treatment and discussion for each of those uh, findings is very different. And so, again, the outside, they may all look the same, but what's causing it may take us on very different uh, you know, discussions on where can we go, what are our options. Um, you know, and, and everyone's different. So when clients come in, you know, some some owners, you know, you know, opt not to do any workup. Other owners uh, want to work up and you know may not opt to do treatment. Other owners, you know, will go the full way, including with brain tumors. Mm-hmm. And so if surgery is not an option, radiation therapy. We've had some, um, you know, great, uh, you know, you know, uh, improvement and bought the animal good quality time. So for all of us up front, the overall goal is to give you the best options for your animal with his vestibular or her vestibular dysfunction. What is it? Can we put a label on it? Where do we go from here? Um, and again, every client is different on how far they want to go, but um, you know, I try not to upfront, uh, you know, make, Oh, it's going to be bad. We shouldn't do work. I don't know that. So yeah. let's get you more answers and let's uh, have a conversation. Once we know what's causing your animals clinical signs. You know, this is, it, the the uh, this diagnostic ability that we have now is amazing to me. You know, when I started as a technician, we didn't have access to CT scans and MRIs, right? Um, and so um, we didn't have this ability to say for sure what was going on there. And then some of the tr- some of the diagnostic stuff that we did um, was was much more invasive than than these MRIs and CT scans. Which, as far as what we do for animals, you know, as far as um, some of these diagnostic procedures, just really fairly benign. You know, they're they're not like they used to be in in, in in the old days, we do things like myelography and things like that. Um, but the ability to uh, give these give people an answer so quickly and it has, in my mind, changed the outcome of so many patients who have been diagnosed early with something uh, that we couldn't diagnose early 20 years ago. Right. And the outcome could be much different. Right. Yeah, I agree with you 100 percent. And, um, you know, I, I think just a, a kind of a completely different topic, but just with the addition of uh, folks now having um, pet insurance. So that has also, you know, allowed us to, um, you know, do things that 20 years ago we couldn't do. And I I also think with the pandemic, you know, our veterinary industry has, gosh, you know, I I often tell uh, folks that, you know, I've been at MassVet for 20 years. So I had a full caseload a year ago. And what I've gone through this year is, um, you know, one and a half to two times what I was seeing a year ago. So, Pets have become so important um, to their family members, especially during time of COVID. Right. And so, you know, people want to do more 17 year old animals. People want to do workup. Yeah. Um, the animals are very important to family members. I understand. So what percentage of dogs have the idiopathic or old dog vestibular? Do you know? It's hard to, do, uh, to give you a, um, a percentage because, again, 
how many of those animals were actually worked up. So what I would just tell you is, you know, vestibular dysfunction is an extremely common, um, you know, clinical presentation. So what percent of those animals make it to, you know, the ER room that make it to the neurology service that make it into the MR scanner that we actually have that final definitive answer. Mm. So I think it's hard to give you that. So what I'd just say is that it's, you know, it's probably one of the top three things that I see vestibular dysfunction. And then of that category, I would say that of the animals that come in, you know, with acute onset, meaning they were fine, then they weren't. Um, And often, sometimes I, I didn't mention the beginning, sometimes the clinical signs are it starts with vomiting uh, and then quickly goes into um, the ataxia, the drunkenness and the head tilt. And then just the reason for the vomiting is just thinking of yourself, if you're car sick, Ferris wheel, your equilibrium, things are off, motion sickness. It's very common to have uh, you know, either a nausea or vomiting in the very beginning of vestibular dysfunction. And so when these animals come in and they're you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 older, uh, that old dog idiopathic, you know, it's a very common uh, presenting sign, but the big part is acute. So if something's been lingering, something's been there for a bit, it's not quite going away. There's probably something else going on. Um, so I think that it's always best to just, you know, have your vet evaluate, um, try to make sure that there's no obvious uh, other clinical signs, meaning, uh, you know, uh, signs of, you know, other nerves being affected. And then the big part is, uh, you know, following it as far as getting better. So the first thing that tends to get better is the appetite comes back. Um, following the appetite, usually if they have that nystagmus, the funky eye motions, that tends to go away next. The drunkenness gets better after that. And the head tilts the last thing to go. And so if you're, you know, eight weeks into it and you're like, you know, it came on, you know, out of the blue, it was very abrupt, it was very severe, but slowly over time we're getting better, but I still have this head tilt. Sometimes a head tilt is permanent, um, but as long as everything improves over time, those are all good things because something like a tumor or encephalitis, they're not going to get better over time. So those clinical signs are going to stay static and then over time actually get worse. So if you don't have the luxury of getting to an ER, getting to a neurologist, the big part is, um, you know, what's happening going forward? Are signs going away? Are signs getting better? Um, That's a positive uh, positive thing. So will you treat these dogs symptomatically? So will you treat them for their nausea? Will you treat them for their their dizziness? Will you give them an appetite stimulant? Do you treat those symptoms at all? Or do we do we let it play out sort of and and simmer down? Because I know some veterinarians will give them anti-nausea medications and some veterinarians are like, nope, I won't do it. Yeah, it it totally depends on how bad they are when they come in. So remember, there's a variety. So some of them you know, and it's funny because animals, I always say if I was a dog, I'd be a lab because I'd have to be pretty sick to stop eating. So uh, <laughs> same, with our, same with our patients. Me too. Me too. Uh, <laughs> so I'll often ask them, were they eating when this happens? And if they are like, oh, yeah, I ate breakfast this morning, mm-hmm. um, then I'll be like, great. So if they're eating, they don't need the anti-nausea. Um, you know, if they're not eating, if they're vomiting, then yes, an anti-nausea uh, can be very helpful. But what I try to tell people is that the anti-nausea, so whether you're using Serenia, Meclizine, those drugs do not make your clinical signs go away. Those are just supportive care. So again, if they're not eating, if they're vomiting, you can use those drugs for a couple of days. 
There are some animals that need an anti-nausea and in, on, in addition or on top of that, sometimes they need an appetite stimulant. So you do want to make sure that they're eating and drinking. Um, so yeah, so again, as far as what, I wouldn't say that I have a specific way how I treat all of them because it, they do vary. Um, the other uh, question that people often ask me is, you know, well, if it's an inner ear infection, should we put them on antibiotics? So I don't. Um, so unless I have reason to think, you know, based on my clinical exam, that it's a, an otitis media interna, meaning what do the outer ears look like? If the outer ears are clean as a whistle, um, I don't automatically put them on antibiotics in case of an inner ear infection. Um, because if you're truly treating an inner ear infection, you know, that's a six to eight week obligation uh, of antibiotics, which I don't know whether the animal needs that or not. So if the clinical signs came on abruptly. If on my neuro exam, I don't see any signs of an obvious uh, uh, other signs that would tell me that it's a brain problem, then I would rather do your supportive care, eating, drinking, anti-nauseas, uh, appetite stimulants, if needed, um, and a little bit of a wait, watch and see. So if this animal goes home and continues to improve, great. I didn't need my antibiotics. If I put them on antibiotics, if I put them on prednisone or steroids, so if I kind of throw the kitchen sink at them and they're getting better, now I can't evaluate. Is that because I'm treating something or is that because they're going to get better anyway? Mm. Now what do I do with the drugs? So I'd rather, if I don't do not see anything that tells me that has to be a brain problem, that this is all localizing peripheral, which again, it's not a black and white science, but if, if there's nothing obvious that tells me it has to be a brain problem, um, I would rather do anti-nausea, you know, fluids, making sure that you're carrying them, avoiding stairs, you know, helping them get up and around and do the weight watch and see. If that animal deteriorates, that's when I would shotgun it with steroids and antibiotics. But if that animal goes home, plateaus and then improves, then great. Um, you try to make some conclusions based on I didn't do anything that got better on their own in time. So I'd like to jump in here and just emphasize, Kathy mentioned earlier how privileged we are in this area of, you know, New England around Boston to have so many specialists, specifically neurologists. And, you know, I, I hope that we're getting listeners from all over the United States, from all over the, the world. And it seems as though, you know, many, many folks don't have the opportunity to, to seek out this care with MRIs and, and so forth. So I think for many folks out there, you know, there's no shame in doing the the weight watch and, and see. And, um, you know, this has been just such helpful information to know, you know, what to look for. And and are they getting better? Are they getting worse? So, you know, I don't want people to feel badly if they don't have access to a specialist or an MRI, because it sounds like there are a majority of, of dogs that, that may actually improve on their own. Uh, that is absolutely true. So again, it's, it's uh, I think probably the highlights are, you know, again, if vestibular dysfunction is not a disease. There's many things that can cause it. Um, it can be a problem in the brain or out in the periphery. If the animal is older um, and if it's a very abrupt onset, um, you know, if you're able to have somebody evaluate the dog or cat, uh, that would be great. If you're not, you know, supportive care and give it a little bit of time and see see what comes out in the wash. If it's this old dog or idiopathic vestibular, then again, signs will get better in time. If at home signs are getting worse, 
declining, then that's not a, a good sign. And again, trying to get to, to your vet. So, you know, what I tell clients is, you know, it, it's hard because in the run of a day, you can have, um, you know, people who can do everything and you have people who, who can't do much. And so, you know, I'll always tell them we do our best I can with what's in front of us. Um, but the flip side is it's hard for us to give you prognosis, diagnosis, what's going to happen if we can't do any workup. So it is a two-way street. And so, again, if, if workup's not an option, it's, it's okay to kind of see what, what happens. If there's no improvement or things are getting worse, you can try some antibiotics and some steroids. If they work, sometimes I'll say catch the wave and, and ride it as far as it will take you. Uh, but again, if things get better, especially on steroids, um, we have no clue what the heck we're treating. And again, no clue on what that means going forward, but take one day at a time. Right. But at least those steroids may be giving the the animal some relief. And I some think, relief, yeah. And I think a take home message too is that, you know, again, don't panic necessarily at the beginning, because as you pointed out very early on, it could change drastically for the better. And I think we've all seen these dogs that, I mean, it looks horrible and it is terrifying sometimes um, at its onset. Um, I have a, I had a dog that was coming in uh, to my business and, and swimming on a regular basis. And all of a sudden, I heard all this commotion at the, the back door, and the owner had assisted, you know, carried, dragged, he was a big lab, black lab, uh, into the building, and she's screaming, and she's like, my dog just had a stroke, my dog just had a stroke, and uh, en route to the clinic, um, in the car, uh, these symptoms, signs, uh, abruptly onset, uh, he did have nystagmus. I knew enough to know that it wasn't my thing to treat. Uh, we called ahead to the nearest emergency uh, specialty hospital. And uh, this was, you know, kind of before the days of, of, you know, where GPS and all that is so common. So we had actually printed out directions um, and so forth. And, you know, just sent her help get him back in the car, sent her on her way. Uh, they greeted her at the door you know, expected that she was arriving and it was old dog vestibular in the end. And so he was, he was back uh, swimming with us and, and uh, you know, not after too much time. Dr. Silver, you said something interesting uh, when we were talking about vestibular diseases, you talked about vestibular dysfunction, you said dogs and cats. I didn't know cats could get vestibular <laughs> dysfunction. Can we touch on that? And, and are, yes. they experiencing this, are they experiencing the same symptoms as dogs? So, yes, absolutely. Uh, cats can also have vestibular dysfunction. So remember back to the very beginning of the podcast, we talked how all of us uh, have 12 cranial nerves. So all of us have a cranial nerve number eight. So people uh, and any um, animal can have vestibular dysfunction. So the clinical signs, regardless who has it, they're still all the same. So head tilt, nystagmus, uh, drunkenness in varying degrees. And so when you see those clinical signs, it just tells you something's affecting that nerve. And so in kitties, um, same thing. Brainstem things can be anything from a stroke, tumor, inflammation, uh, head trauma. It's going to be pretty bad trauma. Uh, Peripheral causes can be anything from an otitis uh, media interna, 
Um, now, what I will say is, again, who comes in and who's in front of me, sometimes I prioritize things a little higher, a little lower based on what's in front of me. So older cats, again, based on my neuro exam, do I find anything that tells me that this has to be a central lesion, meaning I'm looking for other clinical signs that you might also have if there's a problem happening in the brainstem area. So sometimes older cats, especially if they're hypertensive, kidney disease, if the signs came on very abruptly, it's not abnormal for me to see strokes in those older kitties that have other things going on. Um, vice versa, in those animals, sometimes I see uh, middle ear infections. Sometimes I've seen tumors uh, that are affecting the middle ear. So that old adage, you can't judge a book by the cover. So again, just systematic. What's in front of me? Oh, I have a head tilt. Okay, that's a vestibular dysfunction. All right, let me look at the rest of the animal. Is there anything else that gives me a little hint? Does this animal have a big old nasty ear infection on the same side? Oh, that's a, that's a pretty good hint. It may be all ear related. If not, any other clinical signs that would tell me that this is a brain problem versus an ear problem? And if not, who's in front of me? Is it a two-year-old cat or is it a 12-year-old cat? So again, my, my, you always start with your lesion localization, meaning where's my problem? So right side of vestibular dysfunction, I can't tell you central versus peripheral. So we'll always say likely peripheral, but I can't rule out central. Um, okay, who's in front of me? What can happen in the ear? You can have infections, you can have trauma, potentially can have tumors. Uh, in the brain, you can have stroke, tumor, inflammation. With stroke, it's going to be abrupt onset. Um, with tumors or inflammation, it may come on abruptly, but things are going to decline. With a stroke, it'll come on abruptly, things are going to improve. So again, it's uh, you can kind of prioritize or have a little, you know, I think this is more likely than that based on who's in front of you. But uh, black and white is look at the animal, localize your lesion. If it's vestibular, can you tell it's central versus peripheral? If not, um, you know, what else has been going on? So Dr. Silver, where where is the role of physical rehabilitation in the treatment of vestibular dysfunction? I have received a number of referrals over the years, but I'm not sure in the early stages that it's indicated. And what might we be trying to achieve in the later stages as dogs are recovering from vestibular dysfunction? That's a great question. Um, so, you know, I think the overall big picture still comes down to is what's actually causing this animal's vestibular dysfunction. So if there's something tangible, you know, be it an ear infection or a tumor or encephalitis, then I think the focus has to be on treating the cause. In some of those animals where they're idiopathic, that kind of opens up a different, uh, a good question as far as in people. Certainly, there's, you know, different positions, head motions, movements, where they try to put those little rocks back into place. Um, that, you know, in my 25 years experience with uh, one physical therapist who played with that a little bit um, on the outer end, I don't think it did much. I'm not sure we're there yet with animals, but um, it's a, a good question back at you. In the beginning phase, you know, I think of it, I tell people is imagine having the bed spins. We've all been there. So what's the worst thing that someone's going to do to you if you have the bed spins? It's trying to move you. So in the beginning, it, it's a lot of 
just let them go at their pace. You want to hit the deck, stay low. When they go to stand up, stand on the side that they're falling, rolling. But the more you push them, move them, the worse it is for them. So I think in, um, I'm with you, Chris, as far as in the beginning, you got to let them kind of get a little better on their own before you actually start doing any um, type of therapy or, or treatment for them. So a lot of it's uh, guide it, support it, let them lean on you, fall on you, but let them go at their own pace. I think that um, I think it would. Be, I agree. Absolutely. And, and when I see dogs for vestibular dysfunction in in the clinic, typically they're past that stage where they're nauseous and they're dizzy and so forth. But then, and, and honestly, what I'm usually addressing is some, sometimes compensatory related things, things that, you know, because they've been walking weird or rolling over or, uh, you know, uh, haven't gotten up in a while. Uh, but I think it's a good idea. You know, if you if you had uh, a dog with vestibular dysfunction to just even touch base with your rehabber, because we can guide you through some of those things. So we can talk about, you know, getting yourself uh, if this is going to be a longer term, getting the help them up harness, uh, when to start, you know, uh, getting them to move around. Um, and then in later stages, addressing any compensatory things that happened while the dog was, you know, falling and dizzy and so forth. But, you know, I had a case many years ago where the, the owner's dog was diagnosed with a vestibular dysfunction. Um, there was no uh, no definitive reason why. But they were told to not let the dog get up for three weeks. They were told not to let the dog get up for three weeks. Yeah. And by the time I saw the dog, it had a um, it had a pressure sore down to the uh, exposing the bone, oh, uh, the elbow, yeah. and, and and the vet had been over there every day changing bandages and so forth. Now, if I had, had access to that dog prior to that, I would have been able to talk to them about bedding and move and making yeah. sure there were no pressure sores. And I could have started lasering that you know sore earlier. And um, you know, that woman told me when she saw the dog, she'd been through so much. She was going to give me three days and she was going to euthanize the dog. And I said, yeah, I got to give me more than three days, but I think, you know, we can heal this wound and we can get on a better track because the dog was already feeling better. And the dog was fine and lived, you know, another five years and did great. But if I had just had a little bit of contact with that owner just to guide them in, in what they could have done as far as support, right. Yeah. Uh, it probably would have been, yeah, I probably wouldn't have had to go through so much, you know, to, to get there. Well, yeah, not moving for three weeks. That's uh, not good for anybody. Yes, that was not good for anyone. Yeah. 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 And, and I, advised. I agree that that in the later stages, there are many things that we can do, um, you know, particularly, Kathy, like you're saying, just the, the result of deconditioning, because if right. it is an older pet, it doesn't take long with them being down and out just because of being so dizzy and nauseous and, and so forth that they become quite uh, deconditioned and lose a lot of strength. And so working on functional strength, the ability for them to get up from the floor on their own again, to have some sort of independence that they can get on and off their beds, that they can get to their water bowl, their food dish, etc. I guess I have one specific question in terms of the head tilt with that being the, the last thing to improve. I'm currently seeing a dog that it's been over a year since his vestibular and he still has a very dramatic head tilt and carries his nose almost at the ground. I was able to change that to some degree through like stretching and active and passive range of motion exercises uh, feeding him up, you know, higher, drawing his head up off the floor. In the later stages, is it okay? Um, am I still, do I still have the potential of causing more dizziness um, and things like that? Or have things plateaued 
such that we can work on kind of writing them again? Or has their sense of what is right changed on a permanent basis? And we're actually messing them up more by trying to change that head tilt. Yeah, I think that, so in general, I'll tell you that regardless of the cause of vestibular dysfunction, about 25%, so a quarter of the cases will have some degree of a residual head tilt. So even if the problem has come, has gone, you know, so idiopathic or, you know, maybe it was an ear infection that cleared up, they can have that residual head tilt. So I think as far as, you know, working with them, um, you know, go for it as long as they taxi it. You know, if they can shake their body and not knock themselves over, uh, you know, go for it. See what you can, see what you can do and keep me posted. Cause if you can, uh, physical therapy wise help with that head tilt, I'll send you a lot more cases. <laughs> yeah. So keep I me actually, I actually think that they can get, um, you know, almost like contractured, um, in some of the muscles in, in, in around the neck, you know, and, and people, sure. we would treat torticollis, you know, with the, the contracture or spasm in the sternocleidomastoid muscle. And I kind of think of this as the same way. And if we can, you know, stretch that out and, and he is incredibly food motivated. So, you know, we put a licky mat up high and I mean, he, he looks like a different dog and I, and my gut told me it was a good thing, but I just wanted to, to verify with the expert that uh, he, he's smiling as he's licking his peanut butter these days. So I just have one point of clarification. Did you say that, these dogs can, may or may not have nystagmus, or is the nystagmus a hallmark sign of vestibular dysfunction? No, so it's it's not an all or nothing, and severity doesn't equate severity of what's causing it. So of the things, so even if you have a dog that just has a head tilt, that dog has vestibular dysfunction. So sometimes in the very beginning, so sometimes you'll see nausea, vomiting, nystagmus. Um, I tend to find that if I get referred a dog and it all started a week ago, sometimes by the time they get to me, the nystagmus is resolved. But again, it's not an all or nothing. So even the dog that just has a head tilt or even the dog who just has nystagmus um, or a drunken type of gait when they shake their head, um, any of those clinical signs uh, you know, can be indicative of a vestibular dysfunction or a vestibular lesion. So you've mentioned several times about this drunken gait, and I've been told and, and witnessed myself that a lot of these dogs actually circle. Is that true? Yeah, so that's a, a, a good point. So in general with circling, so you can circle for a variety of reasons. So sometimes the problem is at the front of the brain. So in general, you'll circle towards the side of a problem. Circling by itself can be a problem at the front of the brain or a problem at the back of the brain. Your vestibular uh, system is the back of the brain. So when I see a dog coming in circling, I'm now going to look at what else is going on with that dog. So I can try to define, is that part of the vestibular dysfunction or is this a completely separate issue altogether? So can animals that have vestibular dysfunction circle? They can, but I do want to make sure that if they're circling, I'm also seeing some of those other signs that support vestibular because circling dogs can also circle when the problem's in a different part of the brain as well. Do they circle toward the side of the cranial nerve eight problem? Typically, yes. Circle toward the side of the problem. Interesting. And also, I'm always confused on the head tilt because what I tend to see is kind of a combination of 
rotation right, side bend left, or vice versa. So what I call a head tilt is often the opposite of what the the veterinarians and the owners are, are saying, like if it's left or right. Can you clarify? Um, so in, in general, so for the most part, animals are going to tilt towards the side of the problem. So where you see the ear is going towards the floor. And a lot of times when I ask owners which side, again, sometimes they are looking at the animal and giving you their right or their left. So we always describe it on the animal's right or left. Correct. So if the head, if the ear is kind of going down towards the floor and it's the animal's right ear, not you looking at the animal and going on, on your body parts, the animal's body parts. Um, so usually they'll tilt towards the side of the problem. What's the takeaway? What do you want to leave our listeners with? Um, well, what I leave the listeners with, uh, whether it's an animal owner or uh, referring veterinarians, is um, don't judge a book by the cover. Sometimes the ones that look the worst can have a very happy outcome. And so, again, at first, do no harm. So if you're an owner and this came on abruptly and, oh, my gosh, what can I do? I can't afford. At first, do no harm. Supportive care. Give it a little bit of time. Sometimes things get better on their own. Um, so don't make rash decisions. Give it a little bit of time. So we'll set a date for uh, having you back again as our yes. uh, recurring guest. <laughs> Sounds and, good. Uh, and uh, where can you, where we can find you, Dr. Silver, again at Massachusetts Veterinary Referral Hospital in Woburn, Massachusetts, correct? That's where I am. We'll put that link yeah. up. Thank you. Awesome. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Bye. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed our show. Follow us on Facebook or on Instagram at Petability Podcast. For more information about Kathy's books and living with blind dogs, please go to enableyourpet.com. Thank you and please tune in next time.